Welcome to Compounding Capital, a podcast where we dive into the discovery process and talk to some of the leading minds in investing to help you compound your capital. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Discovery and podcast guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Discovery is suitable for wholesale investors only. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome. My name's Chris Bainbridge and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Devsich. How you going, Mark? Well, thanks. How are you, Chris? Yeah, fantastic. Mark, it's recovered in April. Do you want to share a brief summary of how things went? Yes, April was a return to more normal market conditions with stocks reacting to company announcements rather than the macro-driven events of recent times. There were a number of companies in the portfolio that were either presenting at conferences during the month or gave quarterly updates. The Founders Fund was up a pleasing 7.9% in April and our benchmark, the ASX Small Ordinaries Accumulation Index, was up 2.8% in NZD terms. In the seven months since inception, the Founders Fund is up 26.3% versus the benchmark up 5.9% in NZD. The shock in early April was the Reserve Bank of New Zealand increasing the official cash rate by 50 basis points to 5.25%. This was a day after the RBA kept rates on hold at 3.6%. So there's now a clear divergence between the two countries' interest rate policies, despite them usually being in lockstep. And this has kept the Kiwi dollar high against the Australian dollar. Uh, New Zealand is more a fixed rate mortgage market than Australia, and this means the impact of monetary policy is delayed. However, the far more hawkish RBNZ is increasing the risk of tipping New Zealand to a more severe downturn than Australia, as those mortgage holders feel the pinch of higher rates coming through. This is one of the reasons why we prefer the economic outlook in Australia to NZ currently. April was a busy month of company updates. Two companies which contributed to performance in April were Juratech and Hallowell Travel. Let's start with maintenance and remediation contractor Juratech. Juratech performed strongly in April on the back of earnings upgrades. We last mentioned Juratech in our February podcast. At the time, we said that guidance looked conservative. As a reminder, Juratech had guided to 32 to 35 million EBITDA for FY23. They delivered 16.2 in the first half. We said that doubling the first half put it at the top end of that range before including contribution from its recent acquisition of Wilson's pipe fabrication. During April, Juratech upgraded its full-year guidance by more than 10% to $36 million to $39 million. There's three interesting points. First, the upgrade. The upgrade was stronger than expected, with the top end pegged at $39 million EBITDA. To put this into perspective, Juratech achieved just $19.3 million of EBITDA in FY22. The upgrade was also early. Previously, Juratech has updated the market in May. This year, it came in April. Both the size and the timing of the upgrade point to the strength of momentum in the underlying business. Second, tailwinds. When it comes to investing, you don't get extra points for difficulty. Find a great company with a strong tailwind and good things happen. Part of our original thesis for investing in Juratech was a tailwind from defence spending. This is playing out. In the first half, Juratech's revenue from defence grew more than 100% to $112 million. We see no signs of this slowing down. Our conviction was strengthened by the Australian Defence Strategic Review released in April. That review has prioritised the hardening of Australia's northern bases and building out the infrastructure to support nuclear submarines. If you visit defence.gov.au, there's some interesting information. The Air Force bases alone are a $3 billion spend. 
Durotech's already on site at Tindu in the north doing work, so it looks to be in the box seat there. It's similarly well positioned for naval work. The defence paper earmarks $600 million to be spent on the Coonawarra naval base in Darwin. Durotech has already been awarded preliminary work for that contract, totalling $16.5 million. Defence has also prioritised immediate work at Stirling Naval Base. For Kiwis listeners, Stirling is like our Devonport Naval Base on steroids. Durotech's already doing work on Oxley Wharf at Stirling, and the three new wharfs planned are right beside Oxley. You don't need to do much to connect the dots. Last June was a busy time for defence awards for Durotech. Could this year be the same? The third and final point is management incentives. Show us the incentive and we'll show you the outcome. Directors and key management personnel own 34.9% of the shares on issue. Interestingly, there's also a meaningful number of performance rights which vest a key management personnel in calendar 2024, so we're confident the team remain laser focused on backing up 23 into 24. Was there anything that you thought was interesting coming out of the announcement? There are two points, margins and Wilson pipe fabrication. So firstly on margins, the upgrade in guidance implied a second half EBITDA margin of 84 to 8.7%. This demonstrates that Juratech is back to achieving the 8 to 9% margin it was achieving pre-COVID. This margin could potentially increase with scale over time. And then secondly, Juratech noted that a contributing factor to the upgrade was a stronger than anticipated contribution from the recent acquisition of Wilson's pipe fabrication. Wilson's is now expected to achieve $30 million revenue versus 21.7 in the prior year. Wilson's also achieves a gross margin in the high 20s versus a group gross margin of mid-teens, so it's highly accretive to earnings. A full-year contribution from Wilson's in FY23 should provide a solid start to Juratech's FY24 earnings. Another winner during the month was Hello World. Do you want us to talk us through? Travel and tourism has been a key thematic for the fund. Like all good investments, our thesis was simple. Strong demand and a leaner cost base meant travel companies would earn significantly more post-COVID. And that's exactly how it's played out with Hello World. Hello World is a travel distribution company with operations throughout Australasia and is led by its founder, Andrew Burns. Andrew Burns is a savvy industry veteran who continues to hold 20% of the shares on issue. Prior to the pandemic, Hello World employed roughly 2,000 people and had $5.6 billion of total transaction value, or TTV as they say in the industry. And this was post the sale of their corporate travel business to corporate travel management. They produced an equivalent EBITDA of over $60 million. It now employs closer to 500 people, a huge reduction. And that's a big change and has been reflected in Hello World's operating margins. Hello World reported materially stronger than expected Q3 trading update. It upgraded its full year earnings guidance by 31 to 36% to 38 to $42 million. That's its second material upgrade this year. There were two interesting points from the update. Firstly, despite Hello World upgrading its most recent earnings guidance by 31 to 36%, it still might prove to be conservative. Its guidance implies that earnings will slow from the 14.2 million it generated in the Q3 to only 8.2 to 12.2 in the Q4. Our thoughts are Q4 is generally a stronger period than Q3 as people embark on their European vacations. And secondly, Hello World has beaten its earnings expectations twice. Its original guidance to start the year was for EBITDA of 22 to 26. This is now 38 to 42. Both times guidance have proven to be conservative and it's reflected in the size of the upgrades. So will Hello World beat again? Well, we believe good things come in threes. 
So what does this mean for financial year 24? Well, TTV in the March quarter grew 150% on the prior year. They're on track to achieve somewhere between 2.4 and 2.5 billion this financial year. And they've called out a return to pre-pandemic levels in FY24 or FY25. As ticket prices are now roughly 20% higher, they don't actually require volumes to return back to pre-COVID levels either. We're now seeing both inbound and outbound traffic improve every month. Strong bookings for the coming European summer are setting up Hello World for a bumper performance in FY24. Short-term departures have recovered quicker, and in February we're running at 85% of pre-COVID levels. Hello World's currently annualizing $56 million EBITDA, and assuming TTV continues to recover, margins are maintained, FY24 consensus of $51 million is looking conservative. Chris, was there anything you thought was interesting? Probably two points worth calling out. One, balance sheet optionality, and two, the customer base. In terms of the balance sheet, at the first half, Hello World had, were in a strong net cash position of $55 million. In addition, Hello World's shareholding of corporate travel is now worth around $75 million and is likely to be converted into cash pretty shortly. Hello World's balance sheet provides significant optionality for accretive acquisitions, in the absence of which we'd expect excess funds to be returned to shareholders. The final point is the customer base. Hello World's customer base is largely the well-off over-50 age bracket, who are mortgage-free, enjoy rising asset values, and are finally earning some interest on those bank deposits that they have. They're spending large sums on travel to make up for the lost years of time during COVID lockdowns, and Hello World is seeing record levels per booking. In summary, with strong four bookings, a founder CEO, and a balance sheet primed for M&A or capital returns, we expect Hello World to keep travelling well. Not everything goes to plan. We're constantly looking to improve, so it's worth calling out a lesson we learned during the month. At Discovery, we have a six-month sell rule. If we don't make money in six months, we exit, as we've either got the thesis or the timing wrong. That rule pushed us to exit a position during April. We got the numbers right, but the share register wrong. Consistent selling from a large institutional shareholder has capped the price. If you're not winning, you're learning, providing you make the changes to be successful. We've added a deep dive on the health of the share register to the list for our future investments. This brings us to our levelling up section of our podcast, Discovery's Bookshelf. Before we dive in, we're going to introduce a framework. Life's too short to read average books, so we're adding a screen called the Goodreads Test. Goodreads is the world's largest site for book recommendations. Readers can rate books between a 1 to a 5, 1 being poor and a 5 being great. If a book doesn't score more than a 4, then it fails the Goodreads test and won't remain on our bookshelf. Is there anything that you've been reading or listening to which you thought was worth discussing? Yeah, I read a book, Nothing But Net, 10 Timeless Stop Picking Lessons from one of Wall Street's top tech analysts, and it's written by Mark Mahaney. This book was published in late 2021, so it's relatively recent. So who is Mark? Well, Mark's covered internet stocks for almost 25 years on Wall Street, including five years as a number one ranked analyst. He's covered some of the leading companies of today, including Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, and also some of the leading companies of yesterday, such as eBay, Yahoo, and AOL. The book details the lessons from all the tech stocks he's covered over his 25 years in the market, and he distills it down into 10 lessons. So I've picked out what I consider the most pertinent ones. So firstly, stocks follow fundamentals over the long term, and it's difficult to play quarterly earnings results. If you trade quarters, it gives you four opportunities to sell a stock every year. 
It's difficult to mentally reverse decisions given commitment bias, so it's unlikely you will ever hold the great winners trading quarterly results. The second point is revenue matters more than anything else. Look for those consistent 20 plus percent revenue growth companies as one fundamental tell of a high quality growth tech stock. And this flows through the next lesson. Thirdly, that TAMs, total addressable markets as they call it, the bigger the better. It is unlikely that a company can keep growing at 20% plus unless it has a large TAM. My view on this is a large TAM is most relevant in tech as tech companies have global scale advantages and network effects. For example, social media and cloud computing have global scale advantages. However, the problem with big TAMs comes big competition, as many Australasian businesses fall down when they try to enter global markets and address a much larger TAM than concentrating on dominating their home market, as the competition is much fiercer abroad. To contrast, in the previous book review last month, Peter Thiel's Zero to One, he took a different approach, suggesting companies should first dominate a niche market, then gradually expand into related and slightly broader markets, rather than just jumping into a large market straight away. Lastly, compelling value propositions that put customers ahead of investors should be preferred. He uses example here of Amazon versus eBay. From 1995 to 2005, the real king of online retail was eBay. They had a market cap that was seven to eight times greater than of Amazon, yet Amazon became the much better company because it appealed more effectively to customers. It had better prices, better selection, and more convenience. Overall, the book was an average read, and it was questionable whether it actually needed to be written, apart from self-admiration. It is aimed at a general rather than an investment professional audience. As with many of these concepts, it is not black and white, and identifying the winners is far easier in hindsight than at the time. But the book does have some good basic advice what to look for. A good read score of 3.81 means it has been returned to the Kindle library free of charge. Chris, what have you read this month? My book is Lessons from Titans. What companies in the new economy can learn from the great industrial giants to drive success, sustainable success. Unlike that title, I'll keep this short. This is a book about American industrial companies. Think GE, Caterpillar, Honeywell, Transdime, and the lessons that can be learned from their success and failures. The book calls out three common drivers of success. One, a relentless focus on costs. Two, cash flow. And three, capital deployment. Let's start with cost. Cost doesn't mean one-time restructurings. They generally don't work. Instead, the most successful industrial companies have systems that incentivize cost discipline and continuous improvement. Systems is the essence of this book. What do the authors mean by a system? A system is all about focusing people on two simple points. One, what does a customer actually value? And two, how do we supply that at the lowest possible cost? Essentially, build a cost-focused culture and practice extreme customer service. The authors should have dropped Mike and walked away at that point, but they paid to write a book, so out of the 50,000 other words, there's a couple of interesting points. First, talent management. Rather than focusing on high performers, the authors theorize that the key to success is getting average people to perform at a higher level. How is that achieved? It requires a system whereby all employees understand how they contribute to value creation and coherent incentives to get them to work towards it. This idea of focusing on the middle is at odds with the views of Ravi Gupta from Sequoia Capital, who recently appeared on episode 164 of the Knowledge Project. The nuance is that it probably comes down to the number of individuals required in an organisation. Finally, cash flow and capital deployment. 
The book didn't actually have much to add apart here, apart from that winners produce plenty of cash flow and focus on investing in high return opportunities. Sometimes this required extreme business pivots, such as Roper moving into software companies. This involved often successfully smaller bets rather than transformational acquisitions. In summary, the case studies in the book are interesting, but the book overall is short on detailed specifics. It rates a 4.32 on Goodreads, but note only has 274 reviews. With three authors, perhaps they know a few hundred people. If you're interested in learning more, the authors talk about the book on episode 324 of the podcast Invest Like the Best. In the interest of time, I'd suggest starting there. This brings us to our most exciting part of our show, Leaders and Laggards of the ASX. What do you have for us this month, Mark? I'll start things off with a laggard this month, which is Sinlay Mill. Sinlay manufactures dairy products in New Zealand primarily for its main customer, A2 Milk, which, like Sinlay, is dual listed both in Australia and New Zealand. Sinlay reported another profit downgrade last week after being in a training halt for three days. Sinlay revised its guidance to a range of a $5 million loss to a $5 million profit. And in response to that, the share price crashed by 26.5%. A2, which owns 20% of Sinley, would not be impressed with the share price performance, having fallen from over $12 in 2018 to just $1.60 today. So Sinley first gave guidance in September 2022 at their annual result. They held on to this guidance in December, but mentioned that the first half net profit after tax would be down on the first half of the prior year. This is always a warning sign as a company is hoping that it will come in with a wet sale in the second half. We call it a big second half skew in the industry. Then only five weeks ago, things began to curdle. The company pointed to internal issues stemming from the installation of a new software system, blaming that on downgrading the net profit to 15 million to 25 million. And then this week, it was a third downgrade. Downgrades often come in threes because management and boards are always optimistic that things will recover quicker than expected and they never recut guidance enough at the first instance. The profit downgrade created collateral damage. A2 were also forced to revise their own guidance on the same day as Sinlay indirectly referred to reduced demand from A2 as the main cause of their downgrade. This blame game would have soured the relationship between Sinlay and A2 despite them being tied at the hip. A2 is relying on Sinlay for the bulk of its manufacturing but it also accounts for most of Sinlay's revenue. Sinlay, however, carries the important regulatory approvals necessary for A2's infant milk powder to be sold in China. Both Sinlay and A2 are also heavily intertwined with Chinese influence. Sinlay's controlling shareholder is Chinese dairy company Bright Dairy, who have a 39% holding. Meanwhile, A2 has an exclusive import and distribution arrangement into China with China State Farm, another state-owned enterprise. Chris, despite A2 and Sinlay being codependent, how do you think of the differences between A2 and Sinlay? Sinlay has always been the poor cousin of A2. Sinlay is effectively the capital-intensive stainless steel manufacturing part of the operation. It achieves a return on equity of low to mid-teens between 2016 and 2020. In contrast, A2 has been the capital-light brand milking ROEs of 30 to 50% during the same period. A2 also benefited from the Daigao channel, which effectively sold the English label product into China, enabling A2 to grow fast without needing a large marketing investment. What were the lessons here? At its peak, Sinlay was trading as high as five times 
price to book value in 2018, which was an astronomical valuation for a capital intensive manufacturing business. This valuation is now 0.5 times book value, i.e. below replacement cost, and a lower since listing, as Sinlay is earning far below its cost to capital. The balance sheet is under pressure, with three of five covenants for the remainder of 23 being waived for breaches. In hindsight, A2 had the stronger bargaining power in the relationship, and it was unlikely that Sinlay would be able to earn supernormal profits above its cost of capital for a sustained period. A2 has also diversified its manufacturing reliance from Sinlay, buying a 75% stake in Matura Value Milk factory in Southland last year in partnership with China State Farm. In summary, although Sinlay may get a positive share price reaction on the upcoming SEMAR regulatory approval, we think the high capital intensity, regulatory risk and customer concentration will not lead to the land of milk and honey for shareholders of Sinlay. Chris, what have you got this month? I'm throwing in a curveball this month. I've got a leader. This company ended April up 35% and at one point was up over 50%. So what's the curveball? Despite the strong move, the company is still down 63% over the last two years. That's what makes it interesting. With improving industry dynamics and the sharp rise in share price, we're here to answer the big questions. Has it bottomed? And are we at the beginning of a re-rate, which could mean this laggard becomes a leader? The company I have is Wagner's. Wagner's is a construction materials business listed on the ASX with operations in southeast Queensland. Wagner's has three divisions. The main division is construction materials. This division supplies a third of southeast Queensland cement. It also supplies aggregates, concrete, steel, and services such as haulage into the southeast Queensland market. Wagner's also has two smaller divisions. One, composite fibre technologies, essentially this provides cross arms used on power poles, and environmentally friendly concrete, which provides concrete which doesn't use Portland cement, resulting in significantly lower carbon emissions. Wagner's listed in November 2017 at $2.71 with an EV of $500 million and a forecast of $40 million EBIT. To give you a perspective on the importance of the relative divisions, in 2017, construction materials was forecast to make 44 million EBIT, with the cross arms and EFC making 2 million and then 6 million of corporate costs. Wagner's debuted strongly in 2017, coming on at $3.50 and briefly touching a high of over $4. Unfortunately, since listing, it suffered more headwinds than Magellan's net inflows. The list of headwinds is long losing a price dispute with key customer borrow, increased competition in the southeast Queensland cement market, inflationary costs, I mean here you name it, labour, fly ash, freight, fuel, which it wasn't able to pass on as competition increased, slower than expected uptake of its cross arms in the US, and finally a lack of traction with its EFC division. The combination of these factors saw EBIT decline to just $4.2 million in the first half of 23 and the share price collapsed to touch a low of 52 cents. Mark, what, what's your view? Have things bottomed? Well, the good news is things are looking up. Wagner's has guided to EBIT of 9.8 to 11.8 in the second half of financial year 23, and the share price is recovering. The improved outlook is being driven by three factors. Increased pricing for cement and concrete as market participants become more rational. Secondly, the ramp up of a $140 million contract to supply precast concrete for the Sydney Metro Tunnel and improved margins. And lastly, the roll off of a low margin fixed price contracts in its CFT division. Agree. 
Things are bottomed. The question is, how far can they go? Valuations can be a crutch for ignorance, so always need to be approached with a large dose of humility. We approached it in a variety of ways. First, we looked at FY24 and did a bit of some of the parts. If we're generous and place construction materials and CFT divisions post-rent on an 11.5 times multiple and then ascribe, say, $20 million to the concrete division, which is currently losing money and can't find a suitor, then we could potentially arrive at a valuation of a dollar. Another approach is looking at the value of Wagner's on an asset basis. Again, being generous, if we look at cost, so not the depreciated value of its assets, we could also potentially get a valuation of a dollar. As a cross-check, a dollar would place Wagner's on a price-to-earnings ratio next year of 17 to 18 times. That would be a full valuation given the returns on capital and the fact that Wagner's has to replace a Sydney Metro contract next year. In summary, there could be further upside, but unless there is a significant change in the competitive dynamics in the southeast Queensland market, it's hard to see Wagner's cementing its old highs. Right, let's wrap it there. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any follow-up, you can contact us at info at discoveryfunds.co.nz. Until next time, good luck compounding your capital.